to our podcast, Down the Rabbit Hole, stories of troubled Dutch youth about juvenile crime in the Netherlands. I'm Barbara. I'm Rhino. And I'm Thomas. In our podcast, we talk in depth about the phenomenon of juvenile crime, its causes and consequences. In every episode, we tackle a different issue, we deconstruct it, and then put the pieces together again to leave you with the most recent scientific discoveries on the matter, as well as offer possible solutions. We are hoping to raise awareness on different youth crime issues, but not only that, we hope to shake things up by offering solutions. In today's episode, we will be discussing juvenile youth gangs in the Netherlands. We interviewed several Dutch specialists. We will hear talking about youth gangs throughout this episode, namely criminologist Dr. Robert Rox, senior researcher and professor Frank Weermann, project manager at the Center for Crime Prevention and Safety, Nicole Langeveld, and juvenile probation officer, Marielle van Decker. Now, what do we mean when we're speaking about violent youth? In most academic literature, synonyms such as youth, juvenile, adolescent, and young people are being used. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the most suitable definition of juvenile for our purposes is of or relating to young people who have committed or are accused of committing a criminal offense. The World Health Organization defines young people as individuals between ages 10 and 24, and youth gangs are addressed as any durable, street-oriented youth group whose involvement in illegal activity is part of their group identity. It is clear that we are not speaking about running red lights or stealing candy. No, we are speaking about criminal youth that commit serious violent offenses. Here, let me read you some headlines of this year. Community service officer sent to the hospital after being attacked by violent youth. Youth with knives on the street. Mayors are worried. And just this week, badly injured woman is the mother of a youth gang member. These are serious crimes. We're talking about violent robberies, assault, sexual offenses. The crimes committed by youth have become more and more severe. On top of all that, juvenile crime hasn't gone down for the first time in 10 years. We cannot loosen our grip on this matter. I asked Professor Frank Weermann and Youth Probation Officer Marielle Den Decker about their perception of the problem of juvenile crime. Let's first hear Professor Frank Weermann's comments on the topic. Well, we have seen a decrease in, in juvenile crime in the last couple of, of 10 years, so that's, that's, that's very nice, of course. Um, but uh, in the news, there are a lot of reports uh, in, in the last year about knife crime and increasing uh, violence among some, some young people. So I think there is still a, a small group of uh, uh, troublesome youth, uh, in particular in, in the big cities, in, in the uh, troublesome neighborhoods, that are still uh, involved in a lot of crime and that there are uh, stimulating each other now also through social media and uh, their, their online activities seem to um, increase their uh, involvement in the delinquency. So I think there's still uh, a lot of attention needed for that. Uh, and there's still a small group of young people that, uh, uh, that have big problems, that, that, that are uh, frequent offenders. Uh, and uh, there are problems with youth care for this, uh, this category of young people uh, because uh, the youth care has been uh, decentralized in, in the, uh, the last couple of years. So uh, this small group is, is still not reached very well. And I think that it still needs uh, a lot of attention and uh, improvement. 
Then Decker also expressed her concerns. So I, I don't really believe that there is less crime. I think there is still crime, only uh, we, uh, poli we don't always see it. And police does not always get it because also police, they have their own issues in their own organization. So I think there is, uh, there is enough crime. So, let's talk about what causes this problem. Do these kids just wake up one day and decide to be violent? They, do they walk past the shop and think, I feel like robbing it today? No. The thing is, there are many things leading up to violence. There are many reasons why someone will go into crime. Becoming violent doesn't happen overnight. Many of these kids come from broken homes, meaning single parent households or defective relationships within families. In many cases, such youth don't develop a proper bond with family members. Instead, they develop emotional problems and violent tendencies. I asked their interviewees about the background conditions of juveniles and how this might cause them to go into crime. This is what they had to say. This, this large group, this small group of, of serious delinquents often have, have big problems at home, whether it's, it's broken homes or poverty or violence at home or lack of supervision. Uh, often they, 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 they come from uh, families with, with a lot of problems themselves uh, and, and poor families also uh, relatively often. A lot of youth crime, in my experience, is uh, that kids sometimes they grow up in a, in a very tense environment. It does not say that it's uh, with parents which is uh, like lower in society. It's even uh, parents which are very uh, educated, but they're very busy with themselves uh, or having uh, uh, divorces with fights and stuff. It's sometimes a way of, crime um, is also a way of finding a new way of looking for excitement, feeling tense, uh, and uh, so they, they replace the bad feeling with uh, bad stuff which gives them a good feeling. Violent and aggressive behavior are often seen within criminal youth. Their lack of proper bonding has caused them to have less control over their violent impulses. They stop coming to school and start hanging out with dangerous people. Family and social circles are vital to steer youth away from crime. So when youth becomes detached from both, they will go out of their way to change the situation. They seek a better life. Moreover, psychiatric disorders and independence on drugs or alcohol are often trade of juvenile offenders. Drugs and alcohol only make it worse. Such substances make youth more likely to see crime as a way to a better life. While such youth is vulnerable, criminal youth like to see themselves as tough and respected. They like to boast about their status and crime. I asked Dan Decker about the self-image of juvenile criminals. In general, uh, how would you say do these kids see themselves? Yeah. That's a, I can understand your question, but it's not that simple because how they see themselves is they're also blind for what they feel. So when you ask, I can, I can name some of my clients, which are 
quite high in the list and they commit severe crime. If you ask how, how strong they are, they, they are so strong and they're so tough and they're so hard and they're so... And if I say like, yeah, but you're very vulnerable. Me? I'm not vulnerable. And who do you think you are? And why? And if they say like, yeah, but you know, um, you're very easy to be influenced by, uh, by things. They say, no, I decide myself. I also asked Professor Weermann about the mindset of juvenile criminals. Yeah, well, they 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 uh, they experience a lot of problems themselves, and they have uh, probably uh, not much trust in the in adults in society in general. So that may give them uh, an attitude of uh, yeah, getting what you can and. Uh, Getting up for yourself, standing up up for yourself, so that 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 may have an influence. Absolutely, yeah. Additionally, these kids are vulnerable because they lack a supportive environment. I asked Dan Decker what pushes these kids into crime. Because there is not a lot of kids who really made the choice. I want to be a professional criminal. You don't see it often that they really make a choice by heart, like this is what I want to do. But it feels that they don't have another option. Now, there are also many things pushing youth towards crime. It lures in its members. The criminal lifestyle is glamorized and might seem like a gateway to a better life. Gangs often recruit by promising riches and luxury. Nice shoes, big cars, stacks of cash, all part of the so-called gang life. And this is interesting for at-risk youth. A life away from their dysfunctional family or poverty, a life of luxury and respect. Sometimes, kids look for respect within gangs. They seek to fill the holes of their past life and shape a new identity through crime. They want to leave their old lives behind. They want to be acknowledged, respected by their friends. Gangs might seem as the gateway to such a life. But as you'll see later on in this episode, it is definitely not. And again, juvenile gangs are not groups of kids doing prank calls or other mischief. Juvenile gangs consist of serious criminals that see group offending as part of their identity. This means shoplifting, robberies, assaults. Gangs are portrayed as an easy way to make money quick, but juvenile gang members experience problems with peer pressure, drugs and alcohol. Being exposed to such things only makes these kids even more violent, which can be seen by gang members committing more serious crimes and being more exposed to delinquency. Does gang life really live up to the premise of money and brotherhood as advertised by the gang? Not so much. Gang life is often glorified by its members, by social media images they post online, or by some musical genres such as gangster rap. As we have already discussed previously, young people join gangs because they are searching for friendships or financial sources and they feel cheated when this is not fulfilled. After some time actually spent within the gang, they experience what we call disillusionment. Disillusionment can be caused by unmet expectations, which in turn cause feelings of discontent. These can be due to a combination of reasons, from loss of faith in the group's ideology to inadequate leadership. Sometimes these feelings can also stem from a very small financial gain from working for the gang. Activities such as drug dealership, contrary to the popular belief, can be worth only as much as minimum wage for the low-level gang members. 
What are some of the other reasons members decide to leave? Although adolescents in violent neighborhoods may search for protection when joining the gang, they are not fully aware of the consequences or impacts this might have on them and their future life. They discover a personal upper limit when it comes to experiencing violence and therefore might decide to leave. Sometimes they mature and finish school or start a family. Surprisingly, a violent departure seems to be a myth. Most people leave without any violence on part of other gang members. Sometimes they even report just having to pay a small fee to free themselves from membership. Of course, this heavily depends on the gang itself and the nature of their violence. So indeed, some youngsters reported problems with departure even in the form of being forced to commit a crime before exiting. The majority of adolescents are gang members for one to a maximum of two years. Nonetheless, this short membership can still have severe consequences. Gang members are not only more susceptible to increased violence during their gang career, but are also more likely to commit a crime in their adulthood. Sometimes they can join other violent groups, such as an organized crime group for a more lucrative financial future, or a terrorist organization, if brotherhood was the need they could not fulfill with their gang membership. I let Dr. Rocks explain this. Uh, they have the same maybe skill set and maybe the same goals and ambition. So that might be, uh, be something they would be susceptible to. My former informants who, who kind of joined this, this, this outlaw motorcycle gang that was founded by the leader of the, of the Crips, uh, who are, were, involved in, were involved in some you know, high-profile high murder cases. Well, one of the uh, suspects who first went to Syria... Uh, when he was 17, 18, to fight, wanted to join, you know, uh, wanted to be a jihadi. And then he came back and then he joined this, uh, this criminal organization to share his information and his knowledge about firearms and also maybe plan some, some, some murders. So there you see also the overlap, but then uh, the other way around. So I think when they leave the group and they have this disillusionment, either, you know, from being part of a, of a criminal group or vice versa, also being part of a radical group, and they encounter these problems, they, they kind of look for different ways to maybe feel whole again. And what happens to those who do not join any other violent group after they leave a gang? It can still be difficult for them to reconnect with their families and old friends they cut ties with, or to find a decent job, because they are scarred for life by their violent past. Oftentimes, they are even being harassed by the police, although this tends to be the case in the US rather than the Netherlands. Now, let's listen to our interview with Dr. Rocks again. An older gang member was in his 40s when we, when we met. And in 2012, one of his close friends got murdered in the city of Amsterdam. And it really impacted him because he had been part of the gang for almost 10 years. And he, he became part of the gang because he met the gang leader in prison. And then during the 10 of, or maybe 15 years, at different points in time, he thought, well, I don't want to, want to be a gang member anymore. But he had you know, little opportunities. And in 2012, because of the death of his, uh, his close friend, he, kind of, he, he really wanted to disengage. Because he, he, he lived in Rotterdam, he, dro- he drove me home a lot of times after I you know, had been to the, to the hood. And we had these long and personal conversations. And at one point I said, well, if you, if you need any help, I'm really willing to help. And then uh, in 2013, he really, you know, he, he cut the ties with the gang. He, he put all his energy in first finding a, a place to stay and then obtaining uh, unemployment benefits. 
and then also trying to find a job. And it's a kind of a great story because nowadays he works as a as a truancy officer at a school in Rotterdam, and he kind of tells his life story to help other youngsters who are at risk. But that's one of a success story where he can you know use his criminal past and his is also his skills to his advantage. But then a lot of other informants aren't that lucky that they can take their both emotional but also specific baggage they you know kind of collected during being during their gang membership and put it to good use to illustrate what we have been discussing so far we will now talk about a case study crip or die by dr robert rox it looks into the departure of 20 members from the dutch youth gang rolling 200 crips in the hague as dr rox explained in his interview with us he has always had a personal interest in the topic and by befriending the gang leader, he could become more involved in the gang members' lives and observe activities firsthand through an ethnographic field study that took place between the years 2011 and 2013. He was there to talk with them about their feelings, hear about their conflicts and the role that disillusionment played in their departure. His role as researcher within the gang was not always neither safe nor easy. There was a specific part of my research that the gang leader didn't like. Because I wrote there, I wrote something about the, the practice of snitching, right? Something that is not condoned on a street level, don't talk to police, never talk to police. And what I encountered during my research is that everyone that kind of hates snitching, but simultaneously everyone has experienced being snitched on. So they say basically no one snitches. But everyone has been snitched on. Now, this is something that that, that, that I kind of, that, that's difficult to wrap your head around. So, in fact, a lot of people maybe do snitch or, or talk to the police. So that was the first thing I, I, I wrote about. The second thing I wrote about is that all people that I spoke, uh, spoke to at some point kind of said about another person that they were a snitch or maybe involved in some, some police business. Not necessarily because they felt that way, but also as a strategy maybe to deconstruct their, you know, violent or, or criminal pose. Basically to say you're not that tough as you try to come over because, yeah, he's to know you don't have to take him that serious. He's just a snitch, you know. Not necessarily because they thought that he was a snitch. And that's also something I, I described. And a specific passage in my research it kind of stirred up a lot of controversy amongst my uh, informants. Basically to the point that, that, that the leader said, yeah, you really have to explain uh, who said this specific thing about me and he, he wrote this to to me on a, a via whatsapp and i said well i understand your question but i can't give you that information and he kind of pressured me into giving it information to the point that i, I blocked his contact uh because i yeah, kind of was frightened because it was somewhat aggressive um and i thought well that's the end of that that's the end of our relationship right and then the next week i was working at the university i was just you know doing my thing and uh, I hear a knock at the door, and one of my younger informants, he's in my, uh, in my, at the university, in my, in my room, and he says, "Well, Rox, you know, we have to talk because what you did, what you said to the big homie, this cannot fly. You know, we have to discuss this." And and then I was well a bit, you know, frightened also because it was quite intimidating. He said, "Well, I didn't understand why you you acted this way because 
that you know that we know where you work, right? So it had uh, eventually everything worked out, and and and, and I'm good with uh, with all all of them. But yeah, it kind of you know also shows the the problematic issues of of doing this type of research. Where and when did this Dutch gang come from? Groups of youngsters calling themselves Crips and Bloods in the Netherlands can be traced back to the early 90s. In fact, in The Hague alone, it has been estimated by the police that approximately 250 people were active members of youth gangs by this time, which has also caught the attention of the media. Although inspired by similar gangs in the US, there are apparent differences between gangs in Europe and the US, which also causes the denial of their existence in Europe in the first place. This is referred to as the Eurogang paradox. The European gangs tend to be less violent, less structured and less cohesive than most of their American counterparts. The Dutch Crips, namely, are also less organized around drug sales and less territorial. What first started off as a group of friends and relatives from a local neighborhood in The Hague quickly expanded when friends of friends, followed by youngsters from other cities, or even former prisoners joined. Speaking of which, several members were incarcerated over the course of the research because of their involvement in uh, stabbings and assault on two police officers, possession of illegal narcotics and weapon charges. Some of them, however, were making ends meet by combining their gang activities with regular jobs or even combining them with school. As Dr. Ox explains in his research, unity, brotherhood and money have been an important narrative of the young gang and its leader Kalo. However, financial gains, or rather the lack of them, was one of the main sources of the gang members' disillusionment. Members often spoke about putting in work for the hood and that the gang was, in their own words, rich rolling. However, it soon became apparent that this was only a mirage, as two friends from the gang disclosed to Dr. Rocks in a private conversation. We ain't making no money, and that's why we join, you know? But where's the money? If nothing changes, I'll say goodbye to y'all. I'ma leave the set. We make no money, it makes no sense, you know? Gradually, this discontent started to crystallize more and more and was apparent in the falling morale, and also from disclosures made by more and more members opening up to Dr. Rocks about their experiences with Crips. They explained how they are forced to limitate their social bonds outside the gang or to report to all the members on a regular basis about their whereabouts and activities. One by one, they decided to cut their ties with the gang instead because the glorified Cribs gang life pictured in newspapers or documentaries was far away from the harsh reality. In fact, most of the gang members really just meant hanging around the neighborhood doing nothing. Kalo and other members of the gang, however, simply justified the disillusionment of younger members and their exit as a weakness. In their own words, it had just become too real. Hi there, this is a commercial for the podcast Mics and Knives. Music is a big part of many people's lives. Therefore, it is not questionable that music influences people. We are here to talk about the effects which drill rap music can have on people, which can be quite disturbing sometimes, especially for the youth. In our podcast, we will discuss where the drill rap scene originated, compared to the current situation in the Netherlands, and have experts over to talk about the problem. We want the people who listen to this podcast to inform about the harm it can do and how it disturbs the public order. We would like to create awareness towards interested academics and governmental organizations so that the 
impacts of carrying a knife on the streets, since that seems justified in the drill rap scene, stays limited and under control. We hope this issue will be taken seriously under the organizations that can make a difference. So don't wait and start listening to the podcast Mics and Knives today. Juvenile crime is considered as a serious public health problem that exacts a significant financial and emotional toll on society. There are multiple different methods to mitigate and prevent youth from participating in juvenile crime, both before they have committed crime and for those youth who have already committed some sort of crime. Considering the vast methods and means of criminal activities there are, as well as the circumstances that lead to a youth wanting to commit a crime, there is no one singular foolproof method to stop juvenile crime before it can begin. This is why having a diverse range of programs set up for prevention against juvenile crime is important. One such method is to include youth in after-school programs. This method is designed to keep youth in a safe environment where they can be monitored by adults and thereby decrease the chance of delinquency. This is a method that is aimed to prevent youth from turning towards the path of crime, as well as trying to stop youth who have already committed some sort of crime from participating in further criminal activities. Additionally, it has been noted that a majority of youth participate in juvenile crime as a way of alleviating their boredom. And by having programs after school, adults can monitor youth while giving them a method to reduce them from committing crimes as a way to relieve their boredom if they have nothing else they can or want to do. Another method of preventing uh, juvenile crime is to take youth in group trips to prisons so that they can see what prisons look like, as well as to talk to the inmates of the prison to get a deeper understanding of what the life in a prison is like. The goal of this program, called Scared Straight, is to try to deter youth from engaging in criminal behavior by instilling the feeling of dislike of prison in a youth, especially to try and instill fear in the children so that they would dread the thought of even having to go to prison. Although this method tries to get children to fear prison and try to get them from not committing any crimes, this program has not been proven to be effective. In fact, it has been proven to produce negative effects as the youth who have visited the prison are more likely to commit crimes. This shows that although there are many programs designed to prevent juvenile crime, they don't always work out. Finally, there is a a third program which has been used to prevent juvenile crime in the Netherlands. And the use of this program has already been shown to give a positive effect when trying to deter juvenile crime, as both the adolescents and their parents or caretakers have admitted that this program has helped them for the better. This particular program is one which utilizes psychological techniques to try and communicate with youth who come from a bad environment. For example, bad home situations, abuse, uh, living in a bad neighborhood, or people being around people who have a bad influence on them, such as peers who influence them to try to commit crime, uh, living in an area with a high crime rate, uh, and so on. And this program also tries to communicate with their parents or caretakers in order to prevent or reduce the chance of further delinquent behavior. And this program is mainly aimed towards youth who have shown a high chance of becoming a delinquent in the future to stop them before this happens. Or if these youth come from troubled 
and broken homes, as Mr. Frank Wehrmann had said in our interview with him, as you will be able to hear. Maybe by, by uh, taking advantage of, of the context of young people uh, with, with the, the government already. So uh, uh, young people get contact with, uh, with doctors, uh, 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 the consultatiebureaus in, in the Netherlands may be uh, an important uh, way of uh, getting signals about uh, problems at home, uh, problems uh, at school. The schools themselves, of course, are, uh, can get signals. So, uh, uh, and, and then the next step may be important to, uh, to, to do something with the signals that are getting through. Not, not all signals are getting through, and not, not all families and young people that are in, in trouble get into the system. But when they do, uh, yeah, speed is very important and possibilities to, to intervene. And, uh, at the moment, this, this is a big problem uh, uh, in society to, to handle signals of, of problems uh, swiftly and uh, with enough power. So maybe here is also investment in, in youth care and, uh, and, and local possibilities to, uh, to prevent and intervene. He also mentions that although the system does work, there should also be some changes made to them. Yeah, I think so. And uh, we will also look at, at the system now. And uh, a couple of years ago, the youth care has been reorganized, uh, as, as you know. So it, it, it was a centralized organization, uh, cost a lot of money, and, and uh, the organization was decentralized and uh, totally uh, left over to the local uh, authorities. So everybody had, had to invent their own will again, in a way. Uh, and uh, some, some, uh, some cities spend a lot of money, some, some cities do not have a lot of money. So there's, there's a lot of inequality in how it's uh, organized. So and I, I think it should be centralized in some way or another again. With the existence of these programs, which is just a handful of a multitude of programs that are set up to prevent juvenile crime, each program has a different success rate depending on how they are set up and the country in which they are set up in. It would be beneficial to have multiple programs set up working together. This increases the chance of preventing juvenile crime. For example, setting up an after-school program in addition to a psychological program to help youth living in an environment would be very beneficial as it could increase the chance to prevent youth from going down the path of committing crimes. It is also important to note that although these youth commit crimes, they are also in some way a victim themselves, which is another topic that was mentioned in, in our interview with Marielle Dundecker, who also mentions that rather than looking at the crime, the individual youth should also be looked at. I think I did show you my uh, my tone, uh, my melody, uh, and this is uh, and this is just uh, one side of me. Uh, you know, this is uh, but the way we talk, the way, the way I talk to you, this is the same way I talk with clients or with court or you know, this is. Uh, this is how we do it, um, and you have so many individual uh, cases, um, which they all ask for an individual approach, 
Um, but seeing the person uh, instead of seeing the crime uh, that stays that stays very important. We reached the end of our podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will tune in again for our next exciting episode. We would like to thank again our interviewees for kindly participating in the making of this podcast. Dr. Robert Rocks, Professor Frank Weerman, Nicole Langeveld, and Marielle van Becker. Bye! Bye.